Welcome to the Wilds Cast. Today, Rabbi Wilds speaks with Izzy Ezekiel. Izzy served in the IDF and is the only soldier of any army who lost an arm in combat, only to return to active duty. He's the author of Disarmed Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoy it as much as we did. Okay, we are live. Welcome to the Wilds cast. Uh, I'm very, very excited about my guest uh, this afternoon. Izzy, please tell me how to pronounce your last name correctly. We've known each other, but I always get it wrong. Yeah, it's a tongue twister when you put them together, for sure. It's, uh, it's Izzy Izagui. Izagui. Yeah. Where's the family from originally? That's a Moroccan name. Beautiful. Yeah. Izzy Izagui. So for those of you who do not know Izzy, he is uh, an incredibly proud uh, Jewish person from Miami originally. Uh, who served in the IDF um, and served specifically in Operation Cast Lead, which was uh, one of the incursions into Gaza. He's the only soldier, if, the, if I'm not mistaken, not just of the Israeli army, but of any army who's lost a limb only to return to active combat duty. Is that true of any army? Hard to verify. I, I haven't come across anyone else, but uh, I mean, it's possible. Well, to me, that's the stuff of movies, and it's the stuff of miracles. And you, Izzy, are an incredibly inspirational person. Izzy has turned what would otherwise be, uh, for most of us, a devastating situation into something uh, from which not only he has grown personally, but has used to motivate other people. Uh, we celebrated Yom Yerushalayim yesterday's the 54th anniversary of Jerusalem Day of Reunification of Yerushalayim. And as Israel is again the subject of rocket attacks from Hamas, defending herself brilliantly as she always does, we welcome you, Izzy. And I just want to mention also, uh, Izzy wrote a book in 2018 called Disarmed, Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. And it's an incredible, incredible account of Izzy's story, and I encourage you to get the book. Uh, Izzy, thank you so much for, for joining us. It's really an honor. No, my pleasure. Um, before we get into your life, um, I, I think we, we would be really be remiss if we didn't speak a little about what's going on uh, with our brothers and sisters in Israel. Um, Israel, again, seems to be the subject of uh, countless rocket attacks from Hamas um, and, again, is getting vilified um, in the United Nations, in the media outlets, um, what, what do you think, uh, maybe just give us your thoughts on what's happening in Israel and maybe how we on the sidelines uh, can help in response. Uh, I mean, we could start with a way to help. I think uh, that remains true and, and has never really changed, which is just to continue to support and, uh, and stand up against any kind of misinformation, which seems to be the theme around Israel generally. Um, so helping is just speaking up, you know, not, not, hearing something that isn't true and just staying quiet about it because um, there's a lot of that going around. And, and wh why do you think so many of the, not all obviously, but I've been watching some of the media outlets reporting and, you know, it, it, it always gets, it turns into this sort of uh, he said, she said, and um, Israel, you know, I guess because Israel has the upper hand militarily against uh, some of the Palestinians or Hamas, you know, they get, um, characterized as the aggressor. Um, why is that, in your opinion? Uh, honestly, probably just good marketing. I think, uh, I think the aggressors within the Palestinian people realized a long time ago that they weren't going to win the, uh, the battle on the ground and that the correct way to win is, is in the world of public opinion. And Israel thought that if they were winning militarily, that was enough. And they didn't realize until... I don't know, a decade after that trend started that, hey, we also have to speak up and, and tell the truth and not just win on the ground. Uh, public opinion matters, too. Um, that's a big part of it, I think. Is, is the Palestinian problem your greatest worry when it comes to Israel? Or is that like number two or three? I mean, I don't know if worry is the, white, the, the, the right way to frame it. I'm not worried, per se. I, I, have a lot of, I have a lot of faith in the capacity of the Israeli military to handle any threat. I would say more, more than anything, it's a shame. It's, it's something that saddens me just because it's not an ideal situation. It's something that 
Israel certainly doesn't want, and I believe a lot of the Palestinian people don't want. Um, you know, it's something that stemmed from education. Um, there, there are still generations of young Palestinians that are being taught that uh, that hate is the way to go in this case, and it's just kind of holding progress back. And I'm not sure what catalyst uh, is going to come along and kind of shift that conversation and that ideology, um, but that's necessary if, if, uh, if something's going to change there. Yeah. Have you seen any um, successful ground roots kind of activities between Israelis and Palestinians just getting together and trying to develop a little better understanding and respect for the other? Is, is that I, I, I was I was feeling I, I don't know, I guess just watching a lot of social media that some of that was starting to happen. But then this whole thing breaks out and it's like we're back to square one. Yeah, I mean, nothing nothing specific comes to mind. You do occasionally hear a story of, uh, you know, groups of Israelis and Palestinians meeting for soccer games or conferences. And, and that will happen every few years in this like cycle of, of let's try and then and then hate. Um, there's always going to be good people and bad people on on both sides of any uh, interaction, and uh, sometimes you know one type of voice is is louder than the other. Um, no no specific organization comes to mind, but yeah, of course, over the years I've heard of groups of people that are trying to bridge that gap in the best way possible. And do you think it matters? Like you know, I was uh, my son sent me uh, a couple of uh, tweets from the mayoral candidates. Uh, running for mayor here in New York City, and how they were responding. They're basically supporting Israel, but getting a lot of, you know, negative comments uh, about their support. Do you think it, it, is it, does it matter for us to get on and get into that conversation and react and respond, or just justifies some of the silliness that, you know, the trolls and all that on social media? I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not. I'm not tapped into that. I don't even have Twitter, so I'm not. I'm not sure specifically what you're referring to. I learned a long time ago that every time I went on that application, by the time I got off, I was less happy, so I just deleted it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if it's if it's improving the conversation, if it's if it's uh, mitigating any kind of lie, then it's worth it. If it's just uh, you know raising your blood pressure, then focus your energy elsewhere. A hundred percent. So let's let's focus our energies a little on your story now. What? Why did you decide to leave America? You grew up in Miami. You joined the IDF at the age at age nineteen. What inspired you to do that? Uh, I, I would probably say ideology for the most part. I'm I'm a pretty sensitive person. I was definitely a, a sensitive kid, and having grown up uh, in the Chabad system uh, as a Balchuva. Uh, there was something about, you know, sitting in, in, in school and learning about uh, the Bible, about, I guess, just historically what the Israelites went through all the way up to the Holocaust and, and knowing that uh, I cared enough about my people that when the opportunity came up to protect them, I understood that now we have a military, we have uh, a bit of a backbone in that way. Um, I wanted to take part. Wow. And what was the reaction of your parents, your friends? They think you were crazy. Did you get a big pat on the back? Uh, I don't remember any kind of pat on the back. Uh, <laughs> mostly, mostly concern from my mother, uh, pride from my father, which is ironic because after the injury, when I went back to combat, it was almost the reverse. It was concern from my father and, and tremendous pride from my mother. Mm -hmm. um, but they've both always been 100% supportive of, of that decision, uh, even though I'm sure that they're uh, they have many sleepless nights because of it. Yeah, listen, concern and pride. I think that's a very beautiful response, um, especially when you raise your children to believe in this, and then they go off and do this wonderful thing. I mean, my yarmulke is off to you. Anyone who serves as a soldier in general, and certainly a lone soldier, is, has got my pride and, I guess, concern as well. Um, you're a lefty, and a mortar that was fired hit your left arm. Tell us about what happened. Um, where were you exactly? What operation were you involved with? Give us the specifics, if you can. Yeah, so small correction. I, I was a lefty. That's that's no longer a possibility. Right, right. I've, I've shifted to my to my right arm. But yes, I, I used to be a lefty. Um, I was on the border of Gaza during Operation Cast Lead uh, at the tail end of 2008. And... Uh, one of the hundreds of of mortars that were that were fired towards the border, which is where I was posted at the time, um, you know, hit its target, 
and uh, I, I lost my left arm on the spot. I was conscious for everything that followed until I was put to sleep for, for surgery at the hospital. Um, and it makes for some really uh, good book details. You mentioned my book earlier. Yeah. It takes up a couple chapters for sure. Uh, guys, anyone's listening, it's called Disarmed, Unconventional Lessons from the World's Only One-Armed Special Forces Sharpshooter. It's incredible. I mean, can you share, do you, do you, ha- do you have a memory of what was ha- what was going through your mind at the time, I guess, as you were being transported to the hospital? Oh, I mean, of course. I remember every single detail like it's uh like it's an hd recording those are those are the kind of moments in life that get seared into your brain um so it's really just a matter of what you would want to focus on um you know when i when i talk about this uh to an audience i like to focus on the the comedy of it the things that i i thought were funny um but there's also obviously the the accepting of the fact that i i knew i was going to wake up without an arm it, I, I spoke to the medic on the hospital um, uh, sorry, on the, on the helicopter. And he actually informed me that there was no way to reattach it. It's not like I was going to wake up with, uh, any kind of, uh, usage of that arm. It was just gone forever. And, and I, I went to sleep knowing that and I think maybe that's rare. Um, I also spoke to my mom on the phone before I was rolled into surgery. Um, I was able to calm her down, uh, which is something I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I had the ability to do that despite everything that was going on, the severe blood loss, the medications that I was uh, being pumped with, all the morphine, the fact that I was able to talk to her uh, on the phone and let her know that it was going to be okay. Um, that's uh, that's quite beautiful. That's a, if, uh, a key of a fulfillment of the biblical uh, commandment of, uh, of, of honoring one's parents, uh, to be able to have the, the state of mind to be able to do that, to, to allay her fears. That's incredible. Kolokavo to you. Um, did you, um, make any deals with God or anything? Like a lot of people who are in those kind of moments, like, you know, if you get me out of this, I'll donate all my money to Tzedakah. I'll learn Torah and Akolo all day. I don't know. (laughs) None of that. The deal I made with God probably happened shortly before the injury. Ironically is, uh, I, it's a fill in on for the first time, uh, Maybe since basic training, because in, in wow. basic training, you use uh, you use davening time as an excuse not to do like morning cleanups and stuff. So people love to fall asleep in air conditioning. Well, it's good that it can be used in, you know, for other purposes than talking yeah. to God. Oh, without question. Without question. It can go either way. Right. <laughs> it's right. just like the, the taboo. But but uh, yeah, so so I put on to fill in for the first time, maybe in six months. And then within a matter of, of 20 minutes, I lost the arm that I did the misfit with. So I wasn't pleased with that. Um, and, and that's definitely something that I ruminated on when I woke up uh, in the hospital and I kind of connected those dots. Um, and it definitely, uh, it got me thinking, that's for sure. There's, there's a whole chapter in the book called Arm Wrestling with God for that reason. Wow. Well, I don't know if, if you ever, I heard this story actually, um, from Rabbi Lau, who was many, many years ago after the Yom Kippur War, visiting um, IDF soldiers who had sustained brain injuries in the Yom Kippur War. And there was one uh, soldier who called him over and asked him a very interesting halachic query. He said, Rabbi, is it okay if um, I only put the arm filling on? but not the head filling. He had a bandage around his head. He couldn't put the head filling on. He wanted to put it on the arm. And you mentioned that you grew up with Chabad. Have you heard this story? I don't believe so. Yeah. It, is, it, I, I it, would assume it would come up, but go ahead. Yeah. I know. I just, it just came to mind as you're telling me about the filling because it's kind of the reverse situation. Uh, what happened was he was not an observant uh, individual who was in the army. And this is in, he was in the South in Egypt, near Egypt on the Egyptian border in the Sinai. And out of nowhere, it was Sukkot, because the Yom Kippur War went into Sukkot, which is a holiday right after Yom Kippur. And when the Syrians and Egyptians attacked on 1973 Yom Kippur, there's a Chabad truck that pulls up alongside him with like a makeshift sukkah on the back of a truck. And there's a Chabadnik with a lulav and etrog, and he says to the guy, and they were just waiting for orders to do whatever they were supposed to do militarily, and they said, hey, you want to come on our truck and, and, and recite the blessing over the Lulav and Etrog? And the guy's like, dude, get out of here. This is a war zone. What are you doing here? You know, Chabad, they go anywhere. Chabad. And, 
It's a crazy story. Rabbi Lau related the story that this guy told him the story. So the Chabadnik basically prevailed on the soldier to get off of his Jeep, come onto the truck, into that makeshift sukkah, just for a minute to shake the lulav in that truck to do a mitzvah. And guess what happened? A mortar hit the Jeep. I haven't heard the story, but but that's, that's how that story goes, of course. Yeah. The mortar hit the jeep, and right after he was saved, the uh, soldier said to the Chabadnik, I guess you'd call that a miracle. <laughs> and the Chabadnik said, well, what would you call that? He says, okay, what do I do? He says, take on a mitzvah, and he decided to take on tefillin. And when he saw Rabbi Lau, was, he had just regained consciousness, but he sustained a brain injury. He couldn't put the tefillin on the head. He wanted to know if he could do it on the arm. And Rabbi Lau said, yes, by the way, they're separate mitzvot. Uh, which is why we say two separate brachot, one on the arm and one on the head. So if you can't do one, you can certainly still do the other. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a good story. I don't think I've heard that one. Um, I will say that my sense of humor kind of skews in the other direction. And and when I would walk through Jerusalem after the injury, and a chabadnik would walk up to me with tefillin, I would just say yesh liptul. Like I, I don't, have, I'm not obligated to do it. You can see, and, and that would always throw them off. I'd find that funny. But you said your background is Moroccan. And by the way, there is a machloket. There's an interesting debate between the Sephardim and Ashkenazim as to whether these are two separate mitzvot or one. Mm. We, uh, When I put tefillin on in the morning, I make two separate blessings, one on the arm, one on the head, because there's two separate. According to the other opinion that the Sephardim follow, it's one mitzvah. So you do have a patur if you're a Sephardi. If you're Ashkenazi, you still got to put the head one on. They said there's always a little bit of truth in every joke. There you have it. <laughs> exactly. Um, tell me a little about um, how difficult it was to learn to shoot with your less dominant hand then. Like, how did that work? How did you get back into the army? They accepted you easily back into the army? No. And, 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 no tell, <laughs> Certainly not. Um, I mean, there were two separate difficulties that I faced. One was obviously the, the physical need to overcome this new obstacle. And then there was also the tons of red tape and constant no's that I would get from the higher ups in the military. And, and uh, not always out of, uh, you know, an unkindness, maybe, maybe a little gruff in like that Israeli fashion, but more just because they, they thought they believed that it was time for me to move on and do something else. And I kind of just had this notion um, very pretty much from the moment I woke up that I was going to go back and, uh, and I just wouldn't take that no for an answer. And obviously, as that sensitive person uh, that I earlier described myself as, it was very tough to kind of face that while I was trying to do something uh, for a country that I cared very much about. And, and t- tell us, because maybe we could all find some inspiration or knowledge here. But what was going through your mind? I mean, most of us would just curl up in a ball <laughs> and you wanted to go back and fight. You know, you didn't feel you just used the word patur when it came to the tefillin. You didn't feel I had a little patur. I served. I, lo- I lost a limb for the Jewish people in the Israeli army. Why did you want to go back? And how could you share this with those of us who have also sustained some kind of difficulty or loss in life? And and a lot of us don't want to go back. We just want to feel sorry for ourselves. I don't know. Well, I, I think it's important to precursor one of the answers that I would give because there are there are numerous answers to that with the fact that we kind of all like there still there are many things that make me want to curl up into a ball. And, and I probably do sometimes. It's not like uh, some kind of deep well that I can draw from in, in every aspect of life. I still uh, I still complain about paper cuts, you know, um, that just happens to be one thing that uh, maybe it was in the right time of my life. I was in the right state of mind, but I just had this idea that I that I managed to follow through on. And and I promise you, there were many nights and, and many days that I was suffering through phantom pain that I did want to curl up into a ball, and probably did. Um, and maybe that's part of the trick is just not staying in that ball forever, um, not not uh, succumbing to that for good. But um, I would say that a big one of the big reasons for why I decided to go back is that for me, I was of the mindset that. If I continue doing exactly what I was doing before the injury, after the injury, it's as if it never happened. Mm-hmm. I was in combat right before it happened. Uh, I, I finished my active service with honors. That to me meant and still means that for the rest of my life, uh, I, I really am the same way that I was before. Um, and, and, it, and it carries truth because I don't walk around 
uh, feeling disabled. I don't carry myself as somebody with a disability. And uh, it may come as a surprise, but oftentimes I'm, I'm talking to somebody for a while and they don't even realize. And then suddenly they go, wait a second, I didn't even realize you were missing an arm. And it's because I don't, I don't carry that kind of aura, I guess. Um, you know, people, people tend to see us the way that we see ourselves is a lesson that I've learned. A hundred percent. I think that's one of the explanations. To love your neighbor as yourself, your neighbor will love you as you see yourself often. <clears throat> you know, we also have this idea, Izzy, in um, whenever we're asking God for forgiveness for, let's say, sins committed and the like on Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and we clench a fist and we say, you know, I'm sorry I did this, I'm sorry I did that. We never identify ourselves existentially with the sin. In other words, we take responsibility and we say we committed A, B, and C, or we failed to do D, E, and F, but we don't say we are A, B, and C. Right. And that, that, that distinction, I think, is so powerful. And that's kind of what I heard from you just a moment ago, that, yes, you lost an arm, but that doesn't make you a disabled person. That makes you having sustained a disability. And, and I, I know it sounds like semantics, but it's a major difference. I, I actually don't think it's semantic, and, and I think it's a more concise way to, to say what I was trying to describe, or maybe just a different way. I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, very, very important. Now, you write in your book about Captain Rosner, who uh, hoarsely gave orders, even though he was wounded in the neck in Gaza and, and, and knew he would die. Uh, you talk about him like he was a Superman. Can, can you tell us a little about him? Um, I mean, that's putting it lightly. Uh, hoarsely, he, he was uh, hit by an RPG and, and his neck was essentially sliced open. Um, so I, I didn't know the man personally. I, I had seen him from a distance uh, in that week leading up to my injury uh, and, and his, his death, which was shortly before I was injured. Um, what I know is just the stories that I heard afterwards about what he did and how he acted on the battlefield. And uh, I mean, you want to talk about heroics. Um, sometimes people make the mistake of, of pegging me with that uh, for what I did. But to me, when I think of heroes, it's somebody who on the battlefield, knowing they're going to die, continues to give orders so that he can make sure his troops come home safely. Um, and not only did he try to do that, but he succeeded. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you went on Al Jazeera TV uh, and you said you were proud to be a Jew. And you said, and I quote, now that we have finally have a military, the question is how would I in clear conscience, not join the military? So tell us what, why did you first of all choose to go on Al Jazeera and where you criticize Hamas for using Palestinians as human shields. And how was that received? Well, I can tell you that it was received well by the Jewish community, obviously, by the pro-Israel community. Al Jazeera didn't love the result of it. And I'm, I'm, I know that because they took the clip down shortly after it went up. Mm -hmm. um, clearly, it didn't uh, paint the picture that they were hoping for. Um, I'm just glad I didn't make a fool out of myself, honestly, because I had that was the first time I'd ever been on on television. Uh, they reached out to me uh, during another operation uh, in Gaza, and they framed what they wanted me to do on there was just talk about what it's like to be a lone soldier, which is ironic because I was not a lone soldier. Um, but they they made it sound like a fluff piece. They just wanted to know what it was like to be an American who goes to volunteer, and then halfway through the interview. Um, the interviewer started throwing curveballs and talking about things that we didn't discuss. And um, I can understand under that circumstance how somebody might fumble or not know how to deal with it. And, and fortunately, uh, I, I managed to just speak from the heart and, and share the truth. And, and that worked because, again, they took the clip down. And that to me is a, is a win. Well, you're you. I, I think that's a huge win. Sincerity and being genuine, which you clearly are, is the name of the game. Nobody can argue with that. You know, um, and, and having always the right political answer isn't always the way to go. Uh, let's talk a little about just spiritually. I mean, you, you mentioned that you grew up in the Chabad world a little, Miami. Yeah. And um, what was that like growing up in Miami? And um, did the army, I mean... You mentioned before that you decided to join the army because of your religious convictions. Um, was it a very religiously Zionist kind of um, 
instruction or education that you received? Well, tell us about the Jewish background a little. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if religious is the right word for it. Um, it's, it's the tradition behind it. it. It was like I'm. I'm a storyteller. I love hearing stories. I love the loud story you. you like the, that's that is what affects me most in life, um, and because of that, uh, I guess history class or, or Torah study is is the the class that spoke to me most in that religious school system. So it's not the religion per se; it's just the the stories and the way that they were framed, and and my want to participate in this continue continuing narrative, I guess that that had me go over there. Uh, it wasn't like a, a godly thing, or uh, but Zionist, sure, yeah. I mean, it definitely had to do with Zionism. And did you enjoy, I mean, you, I assume you went Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, you went on Shabbat services, Chabad. Was that your normal trajectory that became more, that became less? And I'm curious also, I'm writing a book uh, called The 40-Day Challenge. Uh, it's coming out in July about things that we can do each day to prepare for the high holidays. And I'm asking all my guests how you prepared, if at all, for the high holidays. And what kind of experience was that for you? Uh, I mean, so, so my family, they're, they're Balchuvas. We, we mm-hmm. didn't, uh, I didn't grow up in that system. I was about eight years old when we made that transition uh, towards Yiddishkeit, I guess you can say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there were definitely some speed bumps uh, for me along that, that road. I kind of wish I was uh, a little younger, maybe my sister's age, she was three years younger than me. Um, so I didn't know the difference and, and didn't feel uh, like an outsider. So if I had to, to frame what that experience was, it was being an outsider and, and it didn't always uh, feel great. Um, issues at school, for sure. Um, I was a bit of a troublemaker to begin with. And I think feeling like an outsider only exacerbated that experience. Um, but when I look back on that period of life, I, I definitely have fond memories of sitting around the Shabbos table with my family. Uh, my father loves to sing and, and you know, out Nagunim or whatever it is, and I would like cover my ears because he would do it so loud. But I, but I look back at that and, and I love it. I miss it. Um, you know, my family's in, in, all the way in Israel, and I've been in America for the last uh, seven or eight years, so I don't I don't really have that anymore. These days, as far as preparing, I would just say that if I manage to make it to uh, to a meal or or a festivity, that to me is considered a win. That's the preparation. It doesn't yeah. go much further beyond that. Well, that is a great way to prepare. Uh, I'm trying to give people a little in the book. I'm trying to give people like just like a like a three or four minute experience of studying some insight into Torah every day for the 40 days from Rosh Chodesh Elul until Yom Kippur. Because I find that so many young people walk into high holiday services. I'm um, speaking more about outside of the Orthodox community. That's sort of MGE's uh, population, and um, they just kind of walk in there sort of show up waiting for the high holidays to do its magic. And there's a lot, there's a lot of disappointment. Uh, and, you know, and the rabbi gets blamed. Maybe he wasn't inspiring enough or Chazan didn't do the right songs, you know, but uh, I think it has a lot to do with preparation. Uh, rabbi Salvechik taught that uh, there can be no Kedusha, no holiness without preparation. I mean, imagine going into the army without basic training, you know, Oh, that's that's a good analogy. I was going to use uh, the UFC. I don't know if you ever watch any. Yeah. yeah. You always see the guys like uh, preparing in the back and sparring with their friends, and you think like they're expending energy, they're wasting energy they need in the right. octagon. Right. Without preparation, you come Without, in. You come. It's cold, and it's just you got to be warmed up a hundred percent. That's great. Do you think you said you like stories? I mean, you think your book? Do you think your story will be made into a movie? Any interest in that? I think if it was going to happen, it probably already would have. Uh, I, I think if it was a, a story about... Uh, you are way too honest, man. Yeah. No, I'm, I mean, setting yeah. You, I'm setting you up here. That You know how many film producers are watching this right now? I mean, I live in Los Angeles and I write movies, so I'm, I'm just being honest. If it was going to happen, I have the IP. It probably, the intellectual property, it probably already would have, but who knows? Um, uh, I mean, again, the irony is that I tend to be a bit of a pessimist. So, yes, I can be honest. Well, tell us about your movie writing. That's interesting. Uh, I mean, I moved to Los Angeles from, uh, from New York. I've, that's, that's where we met a couple times at yeah. your events. Um, I moved out here to, to write movies and I was confident that at some point somebody would, uh, snatch up disarmed and, and turn it into a, a feature film. Uh, and again, I think if it was about a U.S. soldier, it probably already would have happened. I don't know if there's much of a market, uh, or uh-huh. 
any of the production companies would take the risk of putting something out that's pro-Israel. I think that's probably the biggest hurdle. Yeah, that's. Uh, I was thinking about that. That's that's kind of sad, but probably true. Um, yeah, I mean, it is what it is. Um, I, I I tend to go easy about all these things. It doesn't. If it was meant to be, it would be. Right. Um, so I write uh, random movies. I write horror movies. That's, that's oh, horror, horror movies. That's really? what I'm. Which is also ironic because I can't watch them. They they scare the living daylight. <laughs> so you, I mean, there's a whole world out there that loves to be scared. So you're, it's a good market. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it is. So that's what I write. Just just finishing up another movie that I'm really proud of, and uh, you know that's great. Good luck. And if um, if we could be helpful in promoting it, you let us know. It'll be an honor. That's that's a ways away, but I will reach out. Yeah, that. yeah. We're, we'd love to be involved in helping you freak out as many people as possible. Um, by the way, you know that MGE has is responsible for more than 330 marriages. Not that I'm counting, but it's about 330 something right now. Um, let us know. I mean, I know you used to come around, but uh, L.A., New York, if you're dating, if you're interested, besides all the film producers watching this, all the young women, if I could be of any help in that regard. This is uh, not really a direct question. I'm just, you know. Yeah, you'd have to be more specific. I didn't, I didn't hear a question. <laughs> There's no question in there, but like, you know, if you want to tell us what you're looking for, we could kill two birds here, you know. Uh, yeah, sure. Jewish, uh, uh, intelligent, attractive. Mm-hmm. You know? All, all those uh, boxes that need to be checked. hundred percent. And I, I assume, I, you know, a lover of Israel. That wouldn't hurt. That, that would not hurt. hurt. Of course. Make things easier. We have the same uh, viewpoint on things. Um, I have here in my notes that our good friend Alan Zeitlin, and I want to thank Alan for bringing us together, um, that in 2011, Shimon Peres of Blessed Memory awarded you one of Israel's highest honors. Uh, tell us a little about that. What did that feel like? Yeah, I mean, it's weirdly enough, it's more interesting for me to focus on this on the time surrounding it than that actual moment, which was, of course, I mean, uh, like the injury seared into my memory, but for for a positive reason, um, shaking uh, shaking the president's hand, feeling that firm grip, and it was it was actually shortly before he passed, um, will probably remain the highest honor of my life. Um, but but <laughs> again, I try to find the comedy in things, but. I didn't want to be there. I, I I was actually fighting to not have to go to that because I was in the middle of uh, commander training. I was in command school. I didn't want to be missing, uh, you know, what my fellow com- commanders in training were going through because it's actually a ten day affair. They take you away from whatever you're doing, whatever unit you're in, and they make you, they teach you how to like march in the right order and and prepare for like that whole event. Uh, a few other events surrounding it, and the whole time I was there, I just felt so guilty that I was missing out on training. And that, and that my, uh, my friends were like suffering in the field while I was hanging out in Jerusalem, uh, eating better army food. Um, and then on top of that, I had this like stubbornness about not doing anything, uh, that I couldn't do myself. And one thing that I can't do myself, uh, is if I'm wearing a shirt, I can't roll sleeves up and down. I only have one arm. So my, my shtick with that is that I would always keep my sleeves rolled up regardless of the weather. It didn't matter how cold it was. It didn't matter if I was crawling through, through rocks, barbed wire. I always had my, my sleeves rolled up. Uh, I still have the scars from that. Um, there is, however, a rule that when you are uh, in a formal event wearing your dress uniform, your sleeves are always rolled down. Mm-hmm. And we were maybe two minutes before going onto stage uh, on live television in Israel on Independence Day to get this award from the president. And the generals that were present there noticed that there was one guy who had his sleeves rolled up and it turned into a, a shouting match. Well, oh my gosh. Definitely them shouting at me uh, and threatening to put me in prison. Moments, oh my gosh. Moments before the highest honor of my life and me just kind of calmly standing there and, and telling them, yeah, go ahead. Send me to put <laughs> Good luck. Try to handcuff me. That'll, that'll look good in the news. That'll yeah. look good, you know? I knew I knew that it would uh, it would work. An Israeli soldier gives his arm up for the Jewish people in prison because of failure to uh for you know to adhere to the protocol. That is so odd because Israel is so not um hung up on those externals. You know, it sounds like you were meeting the queen. The military, I think, would be the one exception to that. And and I and I, by the way, looking back, I'm totally on their side. It was crazy that I just wouldn't roll my, my sleeve down like <laughs> Asked me that one time, but right. that 
that same mindset is really what helped me make it uh, and succeed in combat. Like I needed to like do things that only I could do myself. If I started leaning on other people for help, uh, that's a slippery slope, or at least that's the way I saw uh, that at the time. Um, so I'm with them on that. They probably were were right. Um, but what's great is that I'm there. If you find a picture of of that ceremony. I'm pretty sure talk about the only time in history. That's probably the only time somebody shook the president's hand on that stage with his sleeve rolled up. So you made history. You made, (laughs) that's incredible. That must've been a beautiful honor. Now I, uh, there's something in your book also that really resonated with me because I'm very into superheroes. I've given a lot of dress shows and speeches uh, and villains. Um, And you refer to your lost limb as phantom. Okay. Now in what way do you think, I mean, you mentioned phantom pain that you were experiencing i don't know if, if i mix those two things up but in what way do you think it helps psychologically to give it a name i would say that it is a good framing device for when you're writing a book and want to create a character out of your pain mm-hmm. uh, it's not something i was well i think i'll be a little crazy to, to have been walking around uh talking to my pain as a as this phantom <laughs> entity no it was a it was a story device i think uh, i think it adds another layer to the book it gives uh, it gives my pain voice um so it was very much just a narrative device and do you look at i i know you're you're a very modest person and just a very calm tranquil it seems at least uh, when i see you and i've seen you before and hear from you now but um you know is there a um do you look at yourself a little like a superhero or do you feel like we're supposed to be superheroes a little? Um, because I've heard you say, I, I, I forgot which interview. I think it might've been on the 700 club. I saw you were interviewed by, it was a Christian channel. Um, and um, you said something I found very powerful that like in general, we all have some kind of missing limb, if you will. Yes. yes. We've all, experience some kind of loss in life. Um, I think you mentioned it could be divorce. It could be a, 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 a dream to occupy a certain position in a career and could never happen for some reason. How do you help other people? We have a lot of listeners, young people looking to fulfill their dreams. It's been a lot of disappointment during COVID. It dampened a lot of people's dreams. We're thankfully coming out of it little by little, getting back um, in person, um, how did your situation help you and how can you help other people, uh, cope with their losses and not just cope because what you've done is, is not simply cope. You've, it's propelled you, which is really extraordinary. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was very much a matter of sink or swim. I knew that if I let it define me, if I, the injury was going to define me regardless of what I did. And if it was going to define me, I would rather it define me in a positive direction. So I took something and I ran with it and I was fortunate that all the pieces fell into place. Uh, there were many obstacles along the way that could have uh, knocked me out of the game for good. Um, so part of it is luck. Definitely part of it is resilience, but I, I can't take all the credit for that. Um, and I mean, yeah, we all we all do have that thing. It could be divorce. It could be cancer. It could be whatever, you know, your scar is in life, because nobody nobody goes through life, uh, a real life unscathed. It's not possible. Um, Statistically, it's just impossible. Um, As far as the advice that I can give. I mean, again, I still I still deal with things on a consistent basis and I don't always have the answer. It's not like once you do something like this suddenly everything unfolds in like a positive way for you, or you just have all the answers. I don't, I don't have the answers. And maybe that's the most inspiring message that I can leave your viewers with. It's that if somebody like me who struggles very much with the same things that, that we all do was able to do that one thing, that one special thing, then they could really do anything. And and I do truly believe that Uh, I have to, I have to remind myself sometimes. Yeah, I just think that that image of going back into combat, it's one thing to sustain the kind of injury you sustained and go back to the army, but to go back to combat, to go back to sharpshooting, um, I just find that very, very inspirational because that's, you know, I, I have a talk, you can check it out, it's called um, Failing Forward, I think I stole the name from some book, but it's, um, you know, in Judaism, we very much believe that failure is a prerequisite for success. 
And, you know, Thomas Edison famously said that when uh, there was a young reporter that had the chutzpah to ask him how it felt to fail so many times before he invented the alkaline battery. He says, I never failed once. I just found the 9,000 ways it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. You know, and I always, I like to reframe failure as a step that you have to take for some reason. Um, this is just the way we're hardwired that we can't get it right on the first time. You know, yeah. or you can't depend on that happening. Sometimes you get lucky, but uh, it, it definitely takes multiple tries to accomplish anything of, of note. The question I get is, Rabbi, when do you know to throw in the towel? You know, because I have a lot of inspirational Torah about this. Like uh, one of the great rabbis said that when an adult can learn from a baby, is that you ever see a baby learning how to walk? It gets up, falls down. It gets up, falls down. It keeps doing that until it eventually starts walking. But at what point do you just say, I can't keep trying to get up again? Hmm. You know, and, and, and that could apply in people's careers. That could apply... You know, MG's in the business, if, if you will, of inspiring people to take on Torah and mitzvot and to be more committed. And also, it could be difficult for people, not from that background, uh, especially in COVID when so many people were being isolated. Um, but this is a hard question. I'm not saying I have an answer. I, I definitely don't have an answer to this. But I'm always curious, like, at what point do you throw in the towel? I, I took the bar when I, was, I went to law school. I failed. But I took it again. I failed again. I kept doing, and I was like, I'm going to, but at what point do you like, dude, got to move on. Law is not your thing. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm the wrong person to ask that because I, I, I really don't know when to throw in the towel in, in that way. Um, you know, after the, the military, I, I decided that uh, Hollywood was going to be the next step. I was going to write movies. I've been doing that for a couple of years now. There, there hasn't been tremendous progress. I'm writing things that I'm proud of. Uh, I have management. Uh, I have meetings with a lot of the the big production companies, but nothing has really happened, and it's never crossed my mind to quit or to stop. So, so I don't I don't have the answer as to when to throw in the towel. Um, but I will say it's not necessarily a positive thing. Like you you should know when to throw in the towel. At a certain point, you have to say, "Hey, things are not going the way that uh, I was expecting or, or planning them to." Maybe it's time to pivot. Um, you know, we live in a time where, where pivoting should be, is, and should be part of the the culture. You know, you don't have to start working in a, in a, in an auto shop when you're 19, because it's the thirties the and like, just do that until you retire. Like you could pivot, you could change careers. You could try something new in today's world. The flip side of that is I think the dangers of social media and the image that is put out that you can literally do anything that you set your mind to. Uh, so, so it's like this, this double-sided coin that's, that's yeah. awesome and dangerous in its own way. Um, because we're given the idea that if we want to be uh, an influencer and have millions of followers and this, and like, it's just something you can do, um, but it doesn't happen to everyone. It just looks like it does. Right. It just looks it. but I, I appreciate your language is the pivot because it, it's not, it's it's not failing. You know, I had a guy, when I went to law school, there was a guy I became friendly with. He was about 15 years older than me. He was already a doctor. I said, what are you doing in law school? He's like, you know what? I practiced medicine for about 12, 13 years. I'm not happy. And I'm not about to say that I'm going to do something. And this guy went to school for eight years to be a doctor and a resident and an intern and the whole thing. But he's like, you know what? That's inspiring to hear, actually. Yeah, yeah and, and, and you know what? He's very happy as an attorney, and the medical background was helpful to him, but he pivoted. It's not like I failed at medicine, or let's say you try your hands at film writing, let's say, for X amount of years, which is very, very difficult. And I know a lot of people in that work. It's not simple. It's highly competitive. Uh, and I have a lot of students who are actors in New York City. They got clobbered during COVID. I got a few of them to go learn in yeshiva in Israel. I'm like, nothing's happening in New York, dude. So, um, and... But that doesn't mean you failed. It just means you put your best foot forward, wasn't meant to be. I'm going to try something else. The most important thing is not to stay at something indefinitely when you're unhappy or it's just never taking off and not to beat yourself up for it not having worked or to think that you wasted all those years. It's not a waste. You know, that's like saying I wasted time by meeting somebody. You know, it didn't work out. 
Right, but you learn something along the way. You grow from it. It shapes who's, who you are, who you've become. So, without but I will say that the only thing that I'm caught up on within that example you gave of the the doctor who became a lawyer is that almost every lawyer I've met doesn't want to practice law. <laughs> I found I found the one guy. One guy. You know, I want I found the one guy. You know, listen, I grew up in a family of lawyers, and it's funny because my father, you should live and be well, loved what he did. And he's he's more retired now. Um, and my brother kind of took it over, and he loves it. And I left the law. I practiced for a couple of summers after law school. Um, I, I eventually did pass the bar, and I, I practiced. But I I, um, I didn't leave it because I didn't like it. I left it because I thought the world could do with one less Jewish lawyer, and maybe <laughs> we need another one. Um, so you pivoted. I pivoted exactly. Thank you. I pivoted. I mean, that, that's but that's I think a really positive message, and not just positive. I think it's insightful and it's real. That um, you know, what would it be like at the end of your life, and you look back and you're like, I always wanted to try. Maybe I would never have been successful as a film writer, as a songwriter. My oldest son is in um, is into music. Uh, he writes songs. You know, and I encourage him. I'm trying to have him balance it with other things because it's very, very difficult to make it um, as a musician. But um, but what's going to be after 120? You look back and you're like, I never even tried. That, I think, is the biggest shame. I think you have something there. And and I think after you're done with uh, the book that you described earlier, that 40-day that challenge, you should maybe do something about when to throw in the towel and Ooh. find like, a Jewish spin on that because oh, that's – that's that's worth some money there is uh, is figuring that out and and knowing how to relay that information because I think it's a real problem people don't know people don't know people don't know they don't know uh, uh, when to actually try for something when when to throw in the towel it's uh it's definitely something worth figuring out yeah and you know I don't know if you know in my failure talk I cite a study that was quoted in the Wall Street Journal that in like the last twenty five thirty years the level of um, confidence young people have to take risks has gone down over the years. Mm. The highest risk takers in the United States today are not people in their 20s and 30s, who you think would be because they don't have mortgages or families to worry about. Um, but people in their 50s and up are, I'm talking about in the financial realm, sure. entrepreneurs. Yeah, uh, It's an interesting study. You can check it out. It was done in 2013. It's a little old, but but it demonstrated that um, that people are reticent to take that chance, you know. But there's got to be a way. This is a good book, man. It really is because there's got to be a way of taking that chance and having kind of a fallback if it doesn't work. I mean, my parents told me because you know I didn't want to become a rabbi, and they said that's totally great, but we want you to get another degree that you could fall back on just in case. And yeah. I, I tell it, and, and that cushion was always very comforting to me. If you can afford it and have the time to get that other degree, that's so simple. But if you can push your way through it, then it allows you sometimes to do something else because if it fails, let's not use fail. If you decide to pivot, then um, then you have a backup. I, I mean, I have to say that that also depends on on the psychology of the of the individual because there are some people who will be uh, emboldened by having that kind of cushion behind them, and there are some people who will actually be better off by having nothing to fall back on. It'll like force. So, so it really just depends on the individual. And uh, I think figuring that out and, and finding out how to frame that um, would be, would be pretty interesting. Yeah. I think it depends on the person. Yeah. Uh, the, the, you know, my, yeah. My lead donor, when I first started MJE said to me, he would only give me funding for the first year. And it was only about, I remember it was 35% of the budget. And he said he would give me that funding only if I did this exclusively because I was I was still doing law and I like to dabble. Mm -hmm. He says, you can't get the money unless you – because he wanted to me to have skin in the game. He wanted me to take a chance. Hey, take your parachute away. Exactly. So it is – it's not it, – there isn't a black and white answer like, oh, have a backup, not a problem. Sometimes I think you're right. The backup could could be a crutch. It could be a crutch, but but for some people, it could also be uh, peace of mind and the ability to yeah. focus on this task, uh, you know, with all their energy and not worry about repercussions. So that's yeah. like it's just psychology. Well, you're you're an incredibly insightful 
uh, person is in. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, I hope you'll uh, we'll stay in touch, and next time you're in New York, you'll come back to MGE. I really enjoyed uh, having you there, and I hope you're doing well in, in L.A. and continue to do well. If there's anything else you want to share with our viewers before we uh, begin to descend, we land the plane here. Um, I just, I really do want to tell you how inspirational I, I, I did a little research before this interview just to, you know, hear you and you should just keep telling your story. Um, and as I mentioned before, Izzy is the author of Disarmed um, and he gives talks around the globe. And um, I really wanted you to come on because Yom Yerushalayim was yesterday, but I'm happy you came on given what's going on in Israel today, because you give a lot of inspiration and you give a lot of hope to the Jewish people. The the courage and the dedication that you exhibited and that you demonstrated. And you're an optimist. And uh, we have to stay hopeful, even given what's happening in Israel as we continue to daven for our Jewish brothers and sisters for their safety, to daven for the IDF, um, and um, that God should continue to bless the people in the state of Israel. And he should continue to bless you. You should continue to inspire other people with your story. Likewise, Rabbi. I appreciate that. And uh, don't be a stranger. I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> Thank and, you, Rabbi. I'm speaking with you. Oh, it's great. And by the way, I should introduce you to my friend Jeremy Garlick. He was a, he was a, um, he's a, a very successful um, screenwriter, lives in L.A., dear friend, and he was a guest on this podcast as well. Check him out. Make it happen. Sounds good. We'll be in touch. Okay. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. And uh, you should go Mechael Chael, Izzy, from strength to strength. Amen. Bye, Rabbi. All right, you too. Take care. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wiles. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.